course, another 28 Tech uh, with Angelina Draper. But first, a look at the weather. A dry winter monsoon is affecting uh, southern China. Locally, temperatures in the urban areas uh, fell to about 13 degrees this morning and a few, of course, degrees lower in the new territories and some of those exposed places. Locally, though, fine and dry day ahead, rather cool morning, a maximum of around 19 degrees expected. Uh, it will be cloudier tonight, apparently, and moderate northeasterly winds becoming fresh easterlies gradually can be expected. The outlook, sunshine uh, over the next few days, but temperatures will drop significantly on Tuesday. It will be cold, certainly over the following few days. Currently 14 degrees Celsius, uh, relative humidity of only 62%, which means dry, 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 and a red fire danger warning, which means the fire risk is extreme. Sunday afternoon. Do it, do it. On Radio 3. It's the Sunday session with the homie Simon Wilson. RTHK bang loud through the building. Radio 3 on the dial, no question. Frequency 567 is the weapon. Hey, DJ HK Airplay. 1 to 4 p.m. every Sunday. Hong Kong's finest. DJ Simon brought to you live from RTHK.HK. Frequency 567 AM. Radio 3. DJ Simon. Top of Hong Kong Sundays. Sunday afternoons from one. Every Sunday afternoon, join us for Pinoy Life, our weekly news and entertainment show for Hong Kong's Filipino community. Sa aming talakayan, reaksyon at opinion, ang may init at mahalagang isyu ng mga Pinoy ay aming tatalakayin. Pinoy Life. Pinoy Life. Pinoy Life. Wala at linggo. Pinoy Life with Aileen Alonzo and June Concepcion. Every Sunday afternoon at four on RTHK Radio Three. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Hello and welcome to 28 Tech. Today is the penultimate episode of this 12-part series that looks at how digital innovation and technology are influencing various markets and industries around the world. My name is Angelina Draper and today we're talking about the consumer goods and retail industry. My guests are Julian Douch, a partner at London's Open Reply Agency. They've created a wonderful flagship store in Regent Street in London, which has an abundance of digital technology which um, shoppers can, can use to augment their purchase within store, for example. And later on in the show, I'll be talking to Belay Digital's Managing Director, Charlie Bodicott. Quite quickly, it became apparent that there's big benefits to be had to actually have one voice to the customer across all these channels, to have one set of inventory across all the channels, one set of service standards, to basically have a unified brand rather than have different customers having very different experiences of the brand. But first, let's start with our usual roundup of some of the most interesting stories in technology this week. 
Instagram announced this week that it reached 300 million users, overtaking Twitter with 284 million. The four-year-old app gained worldwide attention when it was purchased by Facebook in 2012 for $1 billion. It evolved from a simple photo-sharing app to be a leading social media platform. The company says more than 70% of their users are outside the United States. And according to research company L2, 58% of Instagram users log in daily and interact with posts 18 times more than they do on Facebook. Amongst the fastest growing areas of social media are visual and video posts, both offered by Instagram and credited for helping the app's fast growth. Not a week seems to go by without Uber being in the news. Just last week, the ride-hailing service made headlines for raising another $1.2 billion in funding. But this week, more lawsuits, suspensions and cities banning the service are emerging. The Indian city of Delhi is the latest to ban web-based taxi firms, including Uber, for their lack of adequate driver checks. The news comes after a passenger in Delhi accused an Uber driver of rape. The co-founder and CEO of Thrillist Media, Ben Lehrer, says Uber's problems are a combination of growing pains and the media's fascination with the company. I mean, look, it's fantastic. It's, it, there's a lot of great stuff. I think clearly there's growing pains, which is inevitable if you're dealing with a company that's growing at literal, literally record-breaking you know, rates every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're having trouble keeping up with it. I think, the, I think the actual service is deteriorating in certain markets, and clearly they're having issues with uh, the, you know, sort of how to handle the scrutiny of being a company that everyone is looking at. Uh, that's, you know, most companies have decades to figure out how to be a big company. Yeah. These guys have had weeks to do it. Remember Groupon. That's a great example. It may have not been because of the company, it wasn't these kind of issues, mm-hmm. but it was a company that everyone said it's the fastest growing company in the whole world. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's the second coming of whatever. And three weeks later, everyone said this company sucks. We hate it. Get it out of our That's face. That's true. And you see that again and again. People, the media falls in love with the company. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets on the bandwagon and eventually the tide turns and people go after it just as hard as they loved it. And that, that happens very regularly. This week, the Google Cultural Institute announced it was making its platform available to museums around the world to build their own app. So far, 11 museums and cultural institutions in Italy, France, the Netherlands and Nigeria have been working with the cultural branch of Google in a pilot project that digitized their stock, making it available to global audiences online. The benefit for museums is the ability to launch these apps without having to invest in technical development. Google does the coding for them. However, they also rely heavily on their own services such as YouTube and Street View. And as you might imagine, the apps are only available on Android devices. Spanish lawmakers passed a law that allows publications to charge services like Google News if they show their content. The search giant responded by pulling their news service in Spain. The head of Google News, Richard Gingras, said in a statement, it's with real sadness that on 16 December, we'll remove Spanish publishers from Google News and close Google News in Spain. But as Bloomberg's Alex Barinka explains, the hardest hit by this move will most likely not be Google. With this, though, the companies that could be in trouble is actually the publishers. We saw a similar tax in Germany where, you know, the onus was on the publishers to come to Google. But, you know, Axel Springer, a, a German publisher, told the New York Times that they saw their uh, web traffic drop off 40 percent on Google, 80 percent on Google News when they were pulled out of that search uh, bar there. So it, the onus could be on the publishers in terms of making sure that their content is seen because consumers 
are using Google, whether or not they're running into some of these privacy issues. Ribbit Mama! And finally, the next time you're clearing out your house and wondering what to do with all those gadgets you no longer use, think twice before throwing some of them out. Just two months after Apple announced it would no longer make the iPod classic, the gadget has become something of a collector's item. A report by Digital Trends says that the discontinued music player is fetching as much as 479 US dollars on Amazon and 460 on eBay. According to the UK's Guardian, the 16-gigabyte classic version, which can store around 40,000 songs, is being sold on Amazon for as much as £670. Rare editions and collector's items are selling for even more. Shopping is something most of us take for granted today. From groceries to cars, just about anything can be purchased through the internet. Also known as e-commerce, the trading of goods and services through a computer network gained mainstream attention in the early 1990s, when the internet was opened to commercial use. Since then, the growth of online sales has been constant. Last year, business-to-consumer sales, also known as B2C, were estimated to have amounted to $1.2 trillion worldwide. Almost every industry has been impacted by the ability of consumers to shop online, but the one that has seen some of the greatest changes is the consumer goods and retail sector. Constantly evolving technologies have played a big part in separating the winners from the losers. We've seen well-known brands disappear for not recognizing the eagerness with which consumers would shift their purchasing habits. And on the other hand, we've seen small businesses manage to grow and reach international customers with very limited resources and time. My first guest today is Julian Douch. He's a partner at Open Reply, a digital branding agency that counts amongst its clients telecommunication, fashion, perfume and supermarket chains. I asked him what he thought was the state of the retail industry today, especially with regards to technologies being touted as the future of retail, including augmented reality, in-store digital services and smart gadgets. The reality is is that these technologies are there. The technologies are maturing. However, the reality is that they're still in an infancy in terms of the consumer's shopping journey, purchasing journey. Um, so what we see in the UK and in, in Europe, there are some good examples where retailers use these technologies to uh, influence the, the purchasing journey of um, of consumers, whether it be in-store or purely online, but they're, they're very few and far between in the big reality, let's say. So I think we're still probably two or three years 
away before they actually become mainstream. But the technologies that are being touted as being the future, such as, for instance, augmented reality or in-store technologies, I'm not seeing that just yet. Are you perhaps in maybe other parts of the world or some clients that you're working with? So there are, some really, there are a few really good examples. Um, if you look at Burberry, for example, big global brands invested hugely in, in digital. Um, so they've created a wonderful flagship store in Regent Street in London, which has an abundance of digital technology which um, shoppers can, can use to augment their purchase within store, for example. So by that I mean they've got interactive mirrors where you can bring uh, a handbag, let's say, up towards the mirror, and you may be looking at it, and then actually at the same time you'll have flash up on on the mirror the information about the product. So that's a really good example of of what they've done. Another example is IKEA. So they've used augmented reality to effectively snapshot your room, and then you can overlay their products, so a sofa or a, a cabinet or a rug, and you can overlay it within your room so you can actually see what the, the furniture would look like within your room, which is a really nice customer service example. So there are some examples, that, but it is big brands that are the ones behind it. Is that mostly because of cost? It is. If, if you look at the investment that you'd have to put in to make this uh, across all the board, across all retailers, it's massive. And in my view, it's not sustainable at this point in time for various reasons, one being the technology itself is is not really standardized. So there are many technologies that you could look at and, and a retailer needs to be very, very sure over what they're investing in is, is actually going to be um, commonplace in, in two, three years' time. Uh, so so that, that's a really important thing. And just even when you think about having to integrate, let's say, mobile into your point of sale, replacing the point of sale in the retailers, you know, is is a multi-million pound investment. So, you know, all of these things are, this is why the retailers are are still probably about three, two, three, four years away from actually making all of these technologies mainstream. The British supermarket chain Tesco is one of the earliest adapters of technology within its retail chain. Um, They are obviously a grocery shop, a, a food supermarket, yet recently they launched a tablet under their own brand, the Tesco Huddle. Why is a supermarket launching a tablet? So it's a really good question. And, and we work, my company works on the Tesco Huddle project. You know, it's very much a strategic decision for, for Tesco. You know, Tesco, as you mentioned, are you know, a really big grocery retailer. Um, but groceries for Tesco's is probably only a really a quarter of, of what it does um, today. So Tesco's also has a lot of general merchandising, like, you know, furniture and televisions, etc. And they do financial services. And and recently, they they also recognized their threat from Amazon, which is very much where a lot of retailers are are seeing a threat from. So, and what they tried to do was invest also in the digital space, which was a very, like I say, a very big strategic move. And they acquired Blinkbox, uh, which is a an online um, video-on-demand streaming service. All of this to become very much a rounded digital organization. And the tablet for them, the Huddle tablet, was a way of harmonizing and bringing together actually all of their 
digital services that they would offer. So by that, I mean their grocery online shopping, their uh, GM shopping, their um, Blinkbox service, in a way that actually all of their customers could access them within sort of one touch of a button, which was on the Huddle tablet. So, so for them, it was very much a strategic positioning of, of bringing all of their services together in one place. And and to that, I, I guess they've sold um, just under a million units of uh, the tablets on the Huddle 1. And they recently launched the Huddle 2, which uh, went live in, in October. But for them, it's interesting because you know, they've also had very bad results recently within their grocery business. So their, their previous CEO, Philip Clark, very much wanted to make them a, a digitally uh, enabled business probably you would argue have taken their eye off the ball slightly uh, on their investment in their investment in their groceries business, uh, which is the core of their business and, and has probably suffered the most. So what retail industries have got, have done particularly well from going online? I mean, you, you would argue that pretty much all retail industries have done well from, from going online. I, I think where we see there have been winners and losers in each of those industries um, to the point where you, you've basically had retailers who have been slow to change their business model um, to become digitally uh, enabled and giving, giving their customers really what they want. So uh, I think that, that to me, is, is the real key. You could say that fashion has, has been massively improved. Uh, you know, people are basically seeing it as another way to generate more revenue. Likewise, home media is but there's also been a lot of losers, if that makes sense. So, you know, here in the UK, we, there was a number of very high-profile retailers that have been around for, for a good while, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, and have lost out. A good example is in media, where we had Blockbuster Video, who are a video uh, rental service. And as soon within 18 months of Netflix coming online, you know, Blockbuster are out of business purely for the fact that they did not react quick enough to the market and, and become an online service. So that's, that's, that's a really you know, big example. Again, in, in uh, Kodak, massive multi-million um, pound worldwide brand, they, they looked at actually doing the digital services uh, around them and actually thought digital camera wouldn't work and, and have completely lost out to, to all online digital media. So there's some real learning curves in there. But from my perspective, a lot of uh, retail sectors uh, and retail industries have all pretty much grown, in my belief, uh, due to online commerce and technology. Julian, thank you very much. Thank you. Charlie Bodycott joins me this morning. Um, he's the managing director at Bolay Digital, a Hong Kong-based company that helps Western retail brands make the most of the Chinese online market. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning. We've come a long way since the early 90s when e-commerce started to make a, uh, a splash in the public. Tell me a little bit about where we are today with online retail purchases. I think I think the um, certainly in the developed markets, um, online is is seen very much as a part of the retail um, kind of landscape. 
Uh, it's moved from yeah, in the early 90s where it, it came on board, basically the catalogue retailers suddenly decided they have a, a much easier way to publish their catalogue, um, but then saw a very different demographic of people using the web. And it's now, I think, across most sectors, about 20%, 25% of retail sales in, 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 in the West, but still much newer here. Some of the words we hear a lot about are multi-channel and omni-channel retail. Can you describe a little bit to our audience what that actually means? Yeah, I think omni-channel is one of those one of those buzzwords like <laughs> big data and Internet yes. of Things, and I, I can talk all about those. But I think the big um, the big difference was, as I said, yeah, when when um, the, the web first started, it was really viewed as you've got a catalogue channel you've got a call center channel you've got a web channel you've got a retail channel they're all different we'll assume it's all different customers so we can have different products in each channel we can run different promotions in each channel um but quite quickly it became apparent that there's big benefits to be had to actually have one voice to the customer across all these channels to have one set of inventory across all the channels, one set of service standards, to basically have a unified brand rather than have different customers having very different experiences of the brand. And that's where the word omni-channel really comes in line. There's still multiple channels of um, of contact for the customer. Now, you and your company work quite a lot with helping foreign brands, Western brands, enter the Chinese online market, which is quite different. Um, One of the biggest barriers are payment methods, or the perceived barrier is payment methods. Is this true? And what are some of the other difficulties you find Mm. Western companies are having in such a huge market like the Chinese market? Yeah, I think think there's a lot of noise about the difficulty of payment. And there are big challenges. I mean, particularly, I think, in China, where the number of people holding an international credit card although growing very fast is still not everyone mm. people are used to running using alipay on online for payment they they expect if they're buying clothes that they'll be able to pay cash on delivery or pay by card on delivery so they can see the product before before they buy them and they do something um, quite interesting don't they with the with the delivery service yeah, which so, we're not used to abroad yeah so the yeah there's a very very widely available payment on delivery and most of the big couriers um, the the courier will carry a card swipe machine. They'll be able to. The customer can then try the goods on, or at least inspect them uh, before they actually commit to pay. And if they don't want it, the courier just takes it away again and takes it back to the retailer. Sounds fascinating. It yeah. sounds, but, sounds like something we'd love to have uh, as well. <laughs> yes, but uh, as you say, it's only really one part. And I think it's easy to say that the only the only thing you need to go into a new market is payment and. The very good example just last week, the Black Friday promotions in Alipay did a massive promotion to bringing Black Friday to China. Um, The four major major department stores um, in the US all joined Alipay's ePass program, which allows a a China customer to pay with their Alipay account in Renminbi and for the the retailer to ship from, from their home market. And how did these US companies do in China? So they all they all now take payment in China and there's no payment barrier. But um, the service standards is a big problem. And they had really, really struggled. If you look on Weibo and what, the response to that, yes, they could take payment, but you couldn't type a Chinese address in the delivery, in the, in the checkout, or um, there wasn't a Chinese returns address, or no one could pick up the phone and, and speak to them in Chinese. Or, so the service standards, yes, payment is important, but 
there are many other things that, that end up being barriers as well as payment. Now, we talked about, you mentioned briefly, sales. Uh, another um, phenomenon of online retail are these private sales, which happen through sort of clubs or memberships that you sign up to with an email, such as uh, Vente Privé, Secret Sale, Buy VIP, and so forth. These are products that can be bought, but are not actually indexed or cannot be found on the internet unless you have been signed up. Luxury brands used to be the ones that were most fearful of uh, the advent of online mm. retail. And yet they are actively working with these private sales. What's changed for them? Yeah, I think you're right. That the luxury brands which are on these on the, on the private sales sites are the ones that were most paranoid that the web was not a full-price retail channel. It was always going to be for bargain hunters, um, and that would damage their brand. But really, I think the... The, the private sales sites are really like the outlet malls um, that the retailer or the brand at the end of the season when they've tried to sell their product, their new product at full price, they've sold, maybe had a sale at the end of the season, they still haven't sold it. They want to move on to new goods. They want to move on to the new season. But actually, the outlet malls, the private sales sites are then a way for them to move the leftover product and that's great for those consumers who are members of those sites. They get to, to see, they may be less sensitive about having the latest product, but they get products at a much lower price with a less, less selection, less newness, um, but they can get the lower price. And because, as you say, those private sales sites are not doing lots of brand advertising and in-your-face pushing, they're not damaging the brand. Um, so really, it's, it's seen as a, as a very useful channel for clearance rather than as a as a as a threat mobile is a very fascinating aspect in the retail industry mobile devices are being used to to search mm. and customers are using it to inform themselves about a product but not necessarily buying which they then do either in a shop or at a at a desktop computer mm. one of the things that mobile does help you do is compare prices when you're in a shop mm. one example is marks and spencers i've tested this myself i've taken their uk app here in hong kong and they've got a lovely little barcode scanner in the app so i can go into the hong kong shop and scan any one of their products and see what the price is in the UK and decide whether it's cheaper to have it shipped out mm. to Hong Kong or buy it here in shop. Now, that's obviously having an impact on the bottom line if customers suddenly become savvy enough to start playing these games. Are retailers worried about that or is it still a small minority that are doing price comparisons like that? Yeah, it, it, it's an obvious thing to do and you definitely see in a shop people with their mobiles out. But it is running in two directions. There's the people who have researched online and are coming to buy in the store. Then there's the people in the store showrooming, using the store as a showroom to find out where they can buy it cheapest. Um, there is a there is an issue across, but a lot of people would rather have the immediacy of a local purchase and the support of the local service rather than wait a week for it to arrive, maybe have a hassle with returns, uh, whatever it is. So I think that the impact is still relatively limited. Um, but I do see many brands, many retailers starting to look at align their prices more across different channels to make sure there's not such a big gap. Because if there's 10 or 15% or there's just the tax difference that you're going to pay anyway, the consumer can is, is not going to be swayed off. When it's three times the price in this market than it is in the US market, it's quite tempting to go and order it from the US.
That's it for this week's episode of 28 Tech. Next week is the last show of the series, so do make sure to listen. Over the last three months, we've talked about the role of technology in various industries with a series of fantastic guests. Some of the topics we've covered are the food and wine industry, travel, sports and fitness, journalism, video games and entertainment, education, and many more. You can catch all of these episodes on the 28 Tech program page on www.rthk.hk or as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and through RSS. I'm Angelina Draper, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on any of these topics. You can contact me via email at the address 28tech at rthk.hk or on Twitter. The handle is at Angelina Draper. And as you heard there, of course, just one more program to go of 28 Tech. Make sure you join Angelina Draper for the last one next Sunday at the same time. Operation Santa Claus. This year, we're raising funds and awareness for 20 wonderful charities. Find out more about each of them and how you can donate to this year's campaign by visiting the Radio 3 homepage or osc.scmp.com. Coming up shortly, news, of course, at nine. Then it's Sunday Smile with Candace Moore and friends. Hey, hey, it's Sunday Escape, brand new and first of many to go on Sunday with Carolyn Ryan and partner Paul Haswell. Dynamic duel, we have to call them, something like that. Forecast, fine and dry, cool morning, maximum of 19 degrees. Moderate northeasterly winds becoming fresh easterlies gradually. Colder by Tuesday, apparently. Currently 14 humidity, 59% and red fire danger warning. RTHK 